Welcome to the Dr. Vincent Buscemi podcast, the survival guide for dentists. I have a really special guest. I get really excited when I have an author of a book I really, really like. This is Dr. Ron Ehrlich, author of the book, A Life Less Stressed, Holistic Dentist. Woke up early. He's in Sydney, Australia, and I'm so grateful for his time. Ron, how are you today? I'm very well, Vincent. Thanks, thanks for having me. Oh, and thanks my, for those nice words. Thank you. It's my pleasure. I love your book. So as a dentist, they tell us we should only be focusing on teeth. What is with your passion for the whole body, for overall health? Do you feel stuck on the financial hamster wheel? You keep paying on your debts like mortgages, car notes, student and business loans, but they never seem to disappear. My name is Dr. Howard Polanski former dentist, now founder of Cashflow Coach USA. I guide families and business owners through a simple system to dramatically reduce your payment towards debt. You keep your same lifestyle and keep more money each month. A recent client will pay off their house in just seven months instead of the anticipated 20 years. Free 10-minute discovery call will determine if I can help you too. Go to CashflowCoachUSA.com Scan the QR code or call 512-608-1020 to find financial freedom faster. Are you tired of using ineffective cosmetics and personal care products filled with harmful chemicals? Meet Ancestral Cosmetics and our range of highly effective products rooted in ancestral wisdom and made with edible ingredients such as beef tallow, olive oil, and raw local honey. Check out our best-selling tallow and honey balm for soft and smooth skin or our revolutionary tooth powder made from eggshells for effective teeth cleaning and whitening without any toxic ingredients. Free US shipping for orders over $50 and you can shop now at ancestralcosmetics.com. Yeah, thanks. Well, look, uh, I, it, I've been in practice now for 45 years, uh, Vincent. So, uh, And very, very early on in my career, I found myself rather surprisingly treating people with headache and neck ache, um, which was what I was not expecting. Um, a patient came in with a crown uh, that uh, they'd had done somewhere else five years earlier, and they said, oh, this, this is a bit uncomfortable, and I adjusted it, and it came back a week later, and they said, yeah, the crown feels better, but the headache that I've had for the last five years is gone. And uh, that really got me thinking and led me into a world of jaw joint dysfunction, clenching and grinding, and chronic musculoskeletal pain. And very quickly, within two or three years, it then led me into a model of health which looked at various stressors that would impact on musculoskeletal pain. And I learnt that they also impact on health as well. And those are the, what I wrote about in my book, the five stressors which are emotional, environmental, postural, nutritional, everyone nods their head until I get to that point, and then I add dental stress. And uh, people go, well, well, hang on, I got the emotional, environmental, postural, nutritional, but what's the dental stress? And you, of course, know what the dental stress is, and I'm sure some of your listeners will too, but there's a lot going on in the mouth that's connected with the whole body, and I include that in my stressor model for two reasons. One, I've been focused on it for over 40 years, so I have a reasonable understanding of what it's about. But I also include it for anybody with a mouth who is interested in their health and has never fully connected the two because there are so many connections. Um, 
you know, so so the big breakthrough, I think, in those 40 years is that the a lot of the other healthcare professionals have come to realise that the mouth is actually connected to the rest of the body. It's been quite a breakthrough. <laughs> Surprise, we all have a mouth and it's connected to the rest of the body. <laughs> well, it's it's connected and it, and it affects it in many ways. So I really got into it originally through musculoskeletal pain, headaches and neck aches and jaw pain. But that led me into a world of all those other stressors. And that leads you into how do you fix that? And that's the pillars of health, which are sleep, breathe, nourish, move, and thought, movement and thought. So it's a whole model of healthcare which works well for chronic pain, works well for disease management, uh, but it also works well for trying to stay healthy. How are you at following these five pillars? Ah, well, you know, that's an interesting one because whenever I say I've written a book called The Life Less Stressed, I have to tell people that it's aspirational for me. It's not auto, it's autobiographical in a sense because it takes you on a journey a bit that I've been on in my life. But look, there's this, um, I've once heard it described as the gravitational pull of culture. The gravitational pull of culture, which, you know, we live in a modern world with lots of temptations and lots of stresses. Um, and so it's a constant vigil. Look, we're all faced with daily challenges. And this is whether, you know, whatever you do, whether you're in the workplace, which is now my main focus, the workplace and individual health, um, we, we are faced with challenges. How we approach those challenges, our mindset is really important. Is it a growth mindset? Is it a fear threat mindset? And a very important part of how you face challenges and your mindset is how you recover. And recovery is really about how well you sleep, eat, breathe, nourish and think. So look, it's a work in progress. Uh, I, I think it's a percentage game for me, Vince, and I don't know about you, but, um, <coughs> uh, but I know that um, if 50% of what you do is good for you and 50% you know is not good for you, to me, that's not a very good percentage. So everyone has to find their balance. And is 60-40 a good balance? I don't think so. 70-30, mm, you're getting there. To me, 80-20 in our modern world is where I try to live my life. When I'm really on fire, I'm a 90-10 kind of guy. And in my life, at various points, I've been totally obsessed uh, and I've been a 100 percenter for a short period of time and I've practically been a social outcast. Neither my family nor my friends want anything to do with me when I'm <laughs> like that. You know, so we have to find a balance. And to me, that balance is 80-20 and it's a daily challenge. It's a work in progress. Um, you know, I try to resist the gravitational pull of modern culture, which is constantly bombarding us with stressors and temptations and things we know aren't good for our health. What causes you to slip below the 80-20 ratio? Uh, so what an interesting question. Well, um, you know, I think this is really about uh, knowing what's going on in your head and, and uh, trying to control those things which sabotage uh, our, our, our lives. And we have that conversation constantly going on in our heads. And uh, what I try to focus on is... The positive, um, you know, when I talk about thought in my book, 
when I talk about emotional stress in my book, I reference the work of Dr. Martin Seligman, who is at Penn, Pennsylvania University, I think, mm -hmm. but he is the father of positive psychology. And so, so when I'm when I'm confronted by stressors, when I'm tired, when I haven't slept well, um, I start to make decisions which aren't as good for me as I know they should be. And I think that's basically what happens. There, there is the recovery part of that challenge mindset recovery cycle, which we go through each and every day, um, both professionally and personally. Um, it's that recovery part that is what gets what goes wrong. So if I don't sleep well for a few days, um, things start to fall apart a little bit. I start to make less. I start to make decisions that aren't good for my health, and that's really what what I what I, I would say is the, the the key. I mean, I could go into details, but but uh, I think essentially that's what it is. When when I'm my recovery falters. I make decisions which aren't uh, good for my health. I find the same way when my sleep suffers, it's just kind of downhill from there. And I can stay 80-20 on four of the categories in your book. Me and my colleagues are opposite. I'm like 20-80 on the thinking part. And as an experienced dentist yourself, I'd love if you could give some of us younger dentists some advice and how to move from a fear mindset to a growth resilient mindset. Well, that's so interesting, Vincent, because that's actually what I do now. I do coaching for the dental profession. Um, and, and look, you know, I think that it is about uh, finding that balance. And, and uh, to me, it's such an intense profession. Dentistry is so intense. And I think where a lot of dentists go wrong is they think that the amount of time that they spent in their practice and the number of patients they see are a measure of their success. And that's not true. That's not true. It's the quality of time you spend with your patient that will, be, will lead to success. Not just success for a practice in terms of building a practice, but success in your life at home as well, because that is the balance that we need to achieve. This idea of work-life balance is very, well, I was going to say last century, but we're already into 2023. So, so um, you know, I think let's say it's pre-pandemic. Let's, let's call that that as a, as a dividing line. I think the pandemic has really elevated work-life balance to a new uh, role where we really, really have to find a life balance. So this is about this. This is getting down into the weeds, Vincent. In keep terms going. Of, yeah. Keep well, going. this is uh, are your audience mainly dentists or are they the public? No, it's mainly dentists. It's probably like oh. ninety percent dentists, ten percent doctors. Oh. Okay. Okay. Terrific. Well, um, that that is really actually. I'm an executive coach. I've been an executive coach for the last ten years, as well as a whole executive health coach. And I call it an executive health coach because I believe everyone's the executive of their own life, whether you're the executive of a business or whatever, I think you have to start with a holistic context. What is your practice all about? What are you doing? Are you, there are, there are different models of practice. There is a symptom-based practice, which means um, a patient comes in with a broken tooth and you fix it. 
Well, that's good. Well done. Most dentists do that. But that's what I call a symptom-based practice. There is a finance-based practice where, you know, making money is what it's all about. And, um, and, I, and I think, obviously, in, you know, making money is important. And dentistry being an extremely stressful job, uh, remuneration is important. So I don't think we should shy away from that. Um, but financial practice is not a good way to focus your practice. Another way of practicing is to be practitioner focused. Your ego is so large that your patients are so honored and grateful, should be so honored and grateful to be in your presence. That's not a good place to be either. And, and I think we've all been to medical specialists where that is their attitude. So our practice uh, for the last 40 years has been a patient-centered practice. And, and people go, well, isn't every practice? No, it's not. There are those other models. And a patient-centered practice looks at the whole patient and starts from a very comprehensive um, first uh, uh, into, you know, uh, appointment with that patient. Our first appointment is usually at least an hour long, and I do very little in that appointment of actual dentistry. I look in the person's mouth, I take my records, I talk to the person, but what I'm really doing is I'm like the conductor in an orchestra. The conductor in an orchestra stands before an orchestra and all of the musicians are there, but they tap on the podium and they get the attention of the orchestra and together they make music. I think we as practitioners are like that because a lot of patients come in to see us and they don't realise how connected their oral health is to their, their whole body health. And we need to be interested in their whole body health as well as their oral health, even though we focus just on their oral health. I mean, I do have a fellowship in nutritional and environmental medicine. I have a fellowship in lifestyle medicine. I'm an I'm a integrated breathing instructor. Uh, you know, I've, I've done a lot of sleep medicine as well, but essentially I do dentistry. That's the other lesson that I've learned. I got into nutrition and I thought, oh, I do all this and I got into this and I do all this. No, I stick with my dentistry in my clinical practice and I work with a team. I have a referral base that I can call on that I have confidence in. So <coughs> I, have, I, I think uh, making longer appointments is really important. To me, a perfect day in my practice is to see maybe eight to 12 patients a day, that would be max, 12 would be max for a good day. And I just like taking my time with my patients and, you know, spending time and quality time um, working with them. So it's an education process for them, for me as a dentist, for my team. We had a triangle in our practice and we had a mission statement in our practice, which we've had for the last 25 or 30 years it's only a half a page. It's probably the most important document. And I have all my, I have so many handouts in my practice for my patients. Um, but that mission statement is summarized by a triangle. And, and I say this to everybody that works with us in the practice. We have a staff of 30 in our practice, in our team. We've got seven dentists, four hygienists, uh, you know, support team that goes with it. Um, and so I say, you've got technical skills, you've got teamwork, and you've got patient care. And it's an equilateral triangle. If you are great at technical skills, 
and uh, you, you're great at patient care, but you cannot work in a team, well, that's, that's a bit of a problem, um, you know, because it is so much teamwork in a practice. Um, if you're terrific as a patient care and teamwork, but your technical skills are not up to scratch, well, that's not going to work either. And similarly, if you are brilliant technically and you're a great team player, but you really couldn't give a stuff about this person sitting in your chair, well, that's definitely not going to work. So this is a very important triangle which places the patient at the centre of it. And it's all about how to schedule appointments and it's all about pre-blocking your time and it's all about doing comprehensive oral exams and educating our patients and, and providing, I like to ask my dentists and I've come into groups, I've worked with a lot of different dentists and I ask them, um, you know, how many days a week do you work? How many patients a day do you see? How many days a week do you work? How many weeks a year do you take holiday? This is really important questions. You know, your US Department of Labor does, I don't know whether you're aware of this, but it does a report on the worst jobs for your health in America, and it looks at 950 jobs. Are you aware of that, Vincent? I am, and I'm afraid to ask which one, Dennis. Okay, <laughs> well, they look at five, they look at five or six uh, uh, parameters, and how's this? Exposure to chemicals, exposure to microbes, exposure to radiation, being seated. That is what defines the worst jobs in America, how you score on those, and there's another one as well. And they go through every job. I mean, we're talking garbage collectors, welding, miners, coal miners, uh, refinery workers, you know, you name it. Guess which is one, two, and three? Dentistry, dental hygienists, and dental nurses. One, two, and three. And even worse, they don't factor in stress into that equation. So factor in stress on top of that. What is stressful about what we do? We work in this confined space on a patient that is conscious, trying to breathe and swallow them, and us, of course, but them, <laughs> while we're holding a drill that goes 400,000 revs per minute with a tungsten carbide tip or diamond tip on it, in, a, in an area where we may not have great vis vision, and all the time our personal assistant, our PA, our secretary, our actual dental nurse, is sitting right next to us for 30 or 40 hours a week with the patient's head in the middle, and you've got to make what is incredibly challenging look easy for the patient's sake. Can you imagine a patient opening their mouth and you look in and you, you say to the, you go to your nurse, oh my God, Lily, this is going to be a tough one. We are really going to have a tough job here. Um, you know, that's not what we do as dentists. We go, oh, hi, Lily, come and sit down. It's all, you know, yes, we're going to be doing this and this. And, and you know what you're about to do is technically, physically, very, very challenging. And we measure success in microns. We measure success in microns. So in that US labor study, um, you know, it, it has five parameters, but it doesn't even factor in stress. And we still come up one, two, and three out of 950 jobs. So, uh, you know, do we have a problem here, Houston? We sure do. Is it a challenging profession? My God, it is. Is it a great profession? Potentially. Amazing. I mean, I've, I've really enjoyed 
my years in clinical practice, um, but I think there are some challenges and I think a lot of people in practice don't realise the full potential of what they're doing. They're working too hard for too little, under too much stress, and finding that balance is a win for you, it's a win for your family, it's a win for your patients, it's a win for your staff. And they are, you know, to me, that's pretty good. Win, 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 win. Hey, what's wrong with that? I feel so heard and seen by you saying that. How do we start that process? Because at the end, you just said it's potentially great. But I don't know how it is in Australia. In the U.S., dentistry and doctors are still the highest ranked for even suicide. So how do we turn a potentially suicidal profession into a profession that's great for us? You know, it's, it really starts with, a ref, we need to reflect. We need to step back. We need to take a big picture view of things here. You know, uh, one, of my, uh, one of my mentors is, is somebody called Alan Savory, who is very well known in the holistic management field of land management. And I realized over 20 or 30 years ago, there's a lot of similarities between holistic land management and holistic dentistry. We could go down a whole rabbit hole there. But the main thing that he said was, we need to have a holistic context, which sits over every decision we make. So, you know, you might make a decision about how many days a week you work. You may make a decision about how many patients you see. You may make a decision about the type of dentistry you do. But there's a bigger decision to make than that. And that is, what is important in your life? What, what do you consider to be important in your life? And Vincent, I'm assuming that you, at your age, with four, I'm sure, gorgeous young uh, daughters, um, you know, you realising that family is, is a really important and central part of, of or relationships. Let's, let's, let's broaden it out even more. It doesn't have to be family. Let's not stereotype things. Let's just say relationships are important. I mean, that's a lesson we've learnt very uh, acutely in this pandemic, that the importance of face-to-face relationships are important. And in fact, the Harvard University have done the longest study of longevity and well-being, and the best predictor of longevity and well-being is relationships. Now, if you're lucky enough to have a significant other, that's great, but it doesn't have to be. It could be family, it could be community, it could be church, it could be a sporting team, whatever. But relationships, friends, relatives, community, this is what's important. So if we take a step back and think about what is important in our life and how long do we want to live it for, you know, I mean, that's important too. As far as I know, and I hope I'm not treading on anyone's toes here, but as far as I know, we only get one shot at life. And, um, you know, I, when I think about what is the meaning of life, I would say um, it means very different things to different people, but fulfilling your potential is something we could all agree on. And, and that means fulfilling your potential professionally, personally, in, prof- in, in relationships, you know, and in order to do that, again, I come back to this first model that I, I go through with my clients and I talk about, we, we look at the, the, the mindset, the challenges, and the recovery. And within the mindset, 
we focus on strengths. And everybody has strengths. And I'd encourage people to go online and do what's called the VIA Strengths Survey. V-I-A. It's free. Do it online. It's a great, it's a great mental exercise to focus you on what your strengths are. And then also to reflect on what goes on in your head. What are the conversations that are going on in your head? And this is why coaching is, is really helpful because, you know, having a conversation, with, particularly with someone who you're not necessarily connected with, who's more focused on you personally, is really important. So um, I think it's a lot about reflection, asking some big questions, being prepared to make some significant changes, if that's what, what needs to be done, but ultimately finding a life balance. Not, not work-life balance, finding a life balance and fulfilling your potential as a goal and constantly checking in with yourself. You said to me, how do I, how do I rate on my life less stressed, you know, my AD20? It's a work in progress. I think this is something, uh, you, you know, you are now in a household full of girls. And I always say that I started to grow up at the age of 30 when I had my two daughters and my wife. Um, there was something about, uh, I, I think about reflecting more than boys are encouraged to do. You know, we boys, when we grow up, you know, we're doers, we get things done. You know, let's do it. Well, well, let's just take a step back and reflect on our lives and do that regularly through our lives. It's, it's, a, it's like tapping the hoop along. You tap a hoop along constantly to keep it going down the road. If you stop tapping that hoop, it drops and you've got to pick it up again and roll it along. And that's what life's a bit like. It's about constantly reflecting on where you're at and checking in with yourself and those around you. Do you have a process for this self-reflection? Is it journaling or just kind of spontaneous? Like, hey, Ron, how you doing? No, no, no. There's, there's definitely a process that we I would go through. I, I think, uh, you know, I think journaling is, is fine and it's a very powerful thing to do. But I think starting a conversation and, and certainly connecting in groups, I, I mean, I think coming together with, with somebody else, be it one other person or a group, and, and having some questions posed to you about, about what is your priority in life, what, and, and, and exploring those strengths. And going through those strengths is a great way of reflecting on your life. You know, like, uh, I, I mean, there are various strengths tests that you can do. There's the Gallup Clifton Strengths 34 thing, which is very business orientated. Um, there's the VIA Strengths uh, 24 strengths thing, which I think has more everyday life application to it as well. And I think that's where I often would start. I look at a person's positive intelligence. You know, I think there are a few intelligences that we need to focus on. Everybody's aware of IQ. You know, we, we all know about IQ. There's EQ, our emotional quotient, our emotional intelligence, our ability to reflect on ourselves, to empathize with others. <clears throat> Emotional intelligence is very important, but positive intelligence is another thing that I think is worth exploring. And there is a way of, uh, of assessing your own positive intelligence. It's on a scale of naught to 100. And this is work out of Stanford, um, where uh, the tipping point is said to be around 75, because 
Our mind is either our best friend or our worst enemy. And, and if we, if, and again, I'm big on numbers. You know, I talk about my health being an 80-20 thing. Well, it's similar to what goes on in your head. Is, is what's good for you going on in your head 80% of the time good? And there's, there's saboteurs in there 20% of the time questioning you, judging you, criticizing you, um, all of those sort of things. That's a journey that's worth exploring as well. So talking and exploring your positive intelligence is another one. And for dentists, um, I think exploring your HQ or your health quotient is also a very important thing to explore. And your health quotient is a function of your own health today, plus your knowledge of all of the issues which impact on your health. And while we're at it, the health of your patients. So the health quotient is another really important thing. So I focus on the PQ and the HQ when I, when I talk to dentists, and that goes into really exploring their own health, a good understanding of what, a, what issues um, you know, impact on that health, and that reflects on their patients as well, and, and that it reflects on how they approach their profession. I think a lot of dentists have such huge potential that is untapped. They work really hard and, and um, you know, there, there is a much better way of working that is far more rewarding on so many different levels. I've never heard of positive intelligence. When the average client comes to you, the average dentist on that zero to 100 scale, where do they normally sit for their positive intelligence? Well, when they start, uh, they, they tend to be, you know, there's a lot of demons going on in our minds as dentists. We are self-critical. We have to be. That's very important um, because once you've left university, you haven't got your supervisor looking over your shoulder telling you whether what you've done is good or not. And doing it well is really important. So being self-critical is, is really important. So we have a lot of stressors to deal with as dentists and we need to really be looking after ourselves but you know like I'm just uh, coming up now for I'm just uh, almost 70 and I've been in practice now as I said for for over 45 years um, I'm not in clinical practice anymore I, I actually am focusing just on executive health coaching um, and and my focus is is really on on the medical and dental profession uh, really, that, that's my main focus, but, but it, it applies across the board to so many other professions. So dentists, well, you know, we occupy that number one, two and three position in the US Department of Labor and we occupy that position of high mental health problems and suicidal ideation and occasionally, um, you know, uh, going on to do that to actually... Uh, it's a serious issue. It's a serious issue. And the problem with dentistry is this, and this is taking a step back as well, it really is the black hole of healthcare. I gave a talk to a group of, uh, of doctors recently on this subject. It was the Australasian uh, Chronic Infectious Diseases and Inflammatory, Inflammation, Inflammatory and Infectious Diseases Society. ACIDS, it's called. And I said, you know, um, boy, you know, the oral cavity is the black hole of healthcare. Why? Because the vast majority of the medical profession have very little understanding about what goes on in the mouth. 
and will often assess their patient's oral health by asking them this question. Have you been to the dentist lately? And they'll go, yep. Did you do anything? Patient goes, no, he was fine. And the doctor will then write, oral health, fine. And that is the full extent of their oral health assessment. Um, So most medical practitioners know next to nothing about what is going on in the mouth. And dentists are so preoccupied with the minutia of what we do and how stressful what we do is for both patient and practitioner, that it's very easy to forget that there's a whole patient attached to this mouth we are working on. And so the oral cavity gets lost. You know, the WHO just recently did a report on oral health, oral diseases. And I think we would all agree that cancer, oh well, cardiovascular disease is still number one killer in the world. And there are 500 or 600 million people globally that suffer from cardiovascular disease. About 450 million people suffer from cancer, the second biggest killer. We know mental health is a problem. About a billion people globally, according to the WHO, suffer from mental health issues. Oral diseases affect three and a half billion people globally. And I would say that's an underestimation. That's an underestimation, for sure, because most people assess their own oral health. If they're not in pain, then their their oral health is good. And we as dentists, particularly dentists that bother to take a panoramic x-ray or, more importantly, go on to do a cone beam analysis of, of a complex patient, or any patient really, but that's part of a comprehensive oral exam, um, you know, they know that oral diseases often have no pain associated with them and yet have implications on cancer, heart disease, autoimmune conditions, of which there are over 100, and are now implicated in mental health issues as well. So, you know, this idea of what we do in dentistry, it is, it is such an important role we have to play. And uh, understanding that as a dentist but balancing that with your own life balance makes for an incredibly rewarding, as I say, on many levels, when I say rewarding, I'm talking professionally rewarding, um, personally rewarding, uh, financially rewarding, um, and, and everybody is a winner when we understand all of the issues that are, assess- uh, that are associated with that. And, you know, we could talk about what what is dental stress and what is a, an HQ for a dentist, uh, but, but dentist's health is not good. Structurally, physically, mentally, emotionally, there are many challenges. You do not look almost 70, and I say that because a lot of the dentists I see who are 60, 70 look 10, 15 years older than you. So the dental health is very low in our profession. But, but I wanted to ask you a question. You said a mm. lot of the dentists come to you with some of their own demons. Mm. What are some of these demons that they open up and tell you about? Well, well, I mean, I think this gets to a more fundamental question when we talk about positive intelligence, about, um, you know, I said our mind can be our best friend or our worst enemy. And we all have saboteurs. They're called, you know, there are saboteurs in our mind 
And we all, the, the most, the, the biggest saboteur for almost everybody is the judge. The judge. Judging what we do, how we do it. Did we do well enough? Could we have done differently? I'm an idiot. Why did I do that? You know, I should have done this. I could have done that. They do it better than I do. They're much more intelligent. You know, they're, you know. So the judge is always there. Um, then there are other things like the stickler, the hypervigilant, uh, the hyperachiever. I mean, a lot of dentists are hyperachievers. Uh, you know, that's how we got into dental school, a lot of us, and that's how we stayed there. Uh, but, but, you know, and we think that those things are really important in our, in, that's what made us what we are, you know, those things, those voices in our heads. But in fact, you know, there's a way, this is why I, I, I look at health as a balancing beam. On the one hand, are stressors, which is anything that, um, that promotes chronic inflammation and reduces immune function. And on the other hand, are the pillars of health that build resilience. And that whole balancing beam pivots on our genes, but we're not a victim to our genes, also how our genes express themselves, epigenetics. So, so this is uh, really important when we think about the five pillars. Thought is one of those pillars. And I reference Martin Seligman and his, his positive psychology approach. What he realized was that in order to achieve well-being at work, we need to, he has what's called a PERMA model, P-E-R-M-A. Are you familiar with it, Vincent? Yeah, it's, a, it's written in your book, I think. I written my book, of course. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. but no, please tell the audience. Okay, well, P stands for positive emotions. P, I'll go through the P-E-R-M, and then I'll tell you he added an extra letter at the end recently, in the last 10 or 15 years. But P is positive emotion, E is engagement, and engagement is key to reducing stress. I'll come back to that. So P, E, R, relationships. I've already spoken about the Harvard study and the importance of relationships, the greatest predictor of longevity and well-being. M is meaning. What is the meaning of what you do? And if the only meaning of what you do is to earn money, you have a problem. Okay, so M is meaning and A is accomplishment or acknowledgement. Now, that is the PERMA model, but he realized that in order to fully achieve one's potential, he needed to add, a, add another letter and, and, and that letter is H, health. We need health to, to do that. So coming back to the P, positive emotions. This is the story that goes on in our heads. This is whether your positive intelligence is 75 or greater or 75 or less. Because 75 or greater says that for 75% of the time, what's going on in your head is positive. It's encouraging. It's pushing you along. It's a growth mindset. It sees opportunities. Um, whereas the other 25% or 20%, whatever your percentage is, are the saboteurs, which are constantly draining you and, and keep you up at night and, and, uh, and, and are hypercritical of everything you're doing. For example, if you finish a, a stressful day at work, you come home from work. Oh my God, I have just had the most stressful day at work. Give me a glass of wine. 
you know, put me in front of the TV. Don't, I don't want to talk to anyone. This is, that's one way of approaching a stressful day at work. Another way of approaching a stressful day at work is spending maybe 10 or 15 minutes at the end of a day reflecting on the day, looking back over your day, journaling what went well, what didn't go well, what you would have liked to have done better, what tomorrow you will do better, what you're going to do when you get home to make your tiredness go away. You're going to focus on maybe going for a walk before, you know, maybe parking the car a little bit further away so that rather than just hopping in the car, coming home and taking it out on everybody at home, you've parked a little bit further away, you've walked through a park or you've, you, you walk a little bit in nature before you walk into the front door, you take a few deep breaths, maybe you spend a few minutes just mindfully relaxing. You know, you're, you're focused on breathing uh, in your practice. You, I'm sure, know that we have the ability to switch from the sympathetic stress, fight and flight mode to the parasympathetic rest and digest mode in the space of one or two minutes just by controlling our breathing. So there are varying techniques for very simply switching from fight or flight to rest and digest, and, and then focusing on, on recovery. And this is what I say. We're faced with challenges. What is our mindset? How do we recover? And recovery is very much about what do we do when we get home? How do we, how do, what, what is our routine? What do we eat? What do we drink? What time do we go to bed? You know, so we need to really put in place things like that, which, which uh, uh, can help us overcome some of those stresses, which in dentistry are huge and many. One of the points in your book that kind of reflect what you're saying here is it's such an active endeavor. You have to be the driver in your life in all aspects, health. But even this, when you said you have to go home, you have to make a decision. Do you sit in front of the TV and drink wine and cry about your day? Or do you reflect and then go back to your family and spend time with them? And it's so easy to sit in front of your phone or your TV and to sulk. So you have to constantly think to yourself, I'm in control. I have to do more things to increase my health or my HQ. Yeah. Well, this is, this is what um, I was alluding to in, in uh, you know, when I was saying we, we uh, I, I mean, I, I'm being a man. This is what goes on in my head. I'm very... Um, I've always been very solutions focused, like just tell me the problem and I'll give you the solution. You know, well, there's, there's something about the process of solving that solution, which is very cathartic in itself and a good exercise to go through because that trains you to constantly and, and, and often reflect on what is going on in your life. And, and that is what you're just saying, Vincent, and that is, it's a constant challenge. It's a constant journey. It's a constant process. But we need to have those structures in place and be aware of them for, to, to embed them into our life. You know, I mean, if we're talking about us as professionals, that's certainly the case. If we're talking about our patients, well, if I often say to a patient, if the only thing you know is your doctor's phone number, if the only thing you know about health is your doctor's phone number, well, that is a serious problem, and it probably explains why we have this epidemic of preventable chronic diseases, because we have abrogated our responsibility. Look, I am so grateful for modern medicine. 
I have been the recipient of modern medicine throughout my life. It has saved my life on one or two occasions. Um, it's, it's saved members of my family's life on several occasions. I am eternally grateful to have the, the safety net of Western medicine. When a crisis occurs, there is no better place to be than in the Western medical model. However, our, our healthcare system has really just become a chronic disease management system. And that is an unbelievable economic model. It is an incredible economic model. The pharmaceutical industry is now worth one and a half trillion dollars a year. Um, you know, the, the, the health industry is huge and it is an industry. But the only problem is it's not a very good health model. It's a great economic model. It's just not a very good health model. So that is where we need to take control of our own health to varying degrees. And, and that is really a challenge for us all as both practitioners and patients. Absolutely. I was shocked in your book you had that list of all the fines these pharmaceutical companies had and their revenues. And then I can't, I'm, I always say it wrong, but GSK, Glaxo, Klein Smith. Klein Smith, yep. 20 years of tax fraud and all they had to yep. do was pay a fine. That's a, well, you know, look, you know, over the last 20 years, I mean, we're talking a one and a half trillion dollar a year industry. Over the last 20 years, drug companies like, and people will have heard of these companies, Pfizer, anybody heard of Pfizer? The <laughs> biggest fine in criminal court ever, uh, $3 billion, Pfizer, for illegal marketing and fraud. Uh, that's a reassuring note, isn't it? Um, but anyway... They've, they've amassed a total of about 70, maybe $100 billion over the last 20 years. Now, I did the maths on that, and it worked out to be something like uh, $3 billion, Well, it is. It's about $3.5 billion a year of fines on the average. But if you've got $1.5 trillion revenue, $3.5 billion, which would be enough to wipe out any other industry, is just petty cash. It's an inconvenient marketing expense. It would go under marketing, really, um, you know, and, and that is what we're dealing with. So, look, uh, we, we could go down a big rabbit hole here, uh, Vincent, but, uh, but I, I, I just feel like, yes, Western medicine has a lot to offer us in crisis, but um, what defines a crisis is a whole other story. Um, that's a big story. Uh, but but putting aside the last three or four years, but but in terms of crisis, you know, um, these are preventable chronic degenerative diseases, heart disease, cancer, over 100 autoimmune conditions. Mental health is now being seen as an inflammatory metabolic disease. So, you know, the connection between chronic inflammation and reduced immune function and disease is unquestionable, and the fact that oral diseases affect three and a half billion people globally, conservatively, I believe, um, is an indication of we have a major problem going on right underneath people's noses. And we haven't even talked about the fact that 95% of the population don't even have enough room for all of the teeth we've evolved to have. Oh, imagine yes. if we didn't have an imagine if we didn't have enough room for the five fingers on our hand 
and everybody got their fourth finger removed when they were 18. And we just kind of over dinner said, oh, Vincent, are you going in to have your fourth finger removed? And you go, yeah, of course I am. Everybody's had their fourth finger removed. What's the big deal about that? We wouldn't accept that as normal, but we accept the fact that we don't have enough room for all 32 of our teeth. And people go, well, there's no big deal about that. We don't need all 32 of our teeth. Well, we may not need all 32 of our teeth, but if you don't have enough room, if you have narrow jaws and crowded teeth, you have a narrow upper airway. And that affects your ability to breathe well and sleep well. So putting aside the chewability of 32 teeth, whether we need it or not, I think we can all agree that breathing and breathing well and sleeping well are important. Um, so there's another epidemic going on right underneath our noses. Now, after I published my book in, in March uh, 2020, or no, 2018, another book came out called Jaws, The Silent Epidemic, written by Professor Paul Ehrlich. Oh my God, I mean, that guy is a legend. <laughs> And he's a professor of evolutionary biology, and I had him on my podcast. I mean, I couldn't resist talking to a Professor Ehrlich. I mean, he's, he's, a, he's a legend in, uh, in the world of environmental biology. And he wrote a book, with a, co-authored with an orthodontist, talking about the silent epidemic of crowded teeth and narrow jaws affecting our ability to breathe well and, and sleep well. So here we have oral diseases, huge, compromising immune function and chronic inflammation, narrow jaws and crowded teeth, 95% of the population don't have enough room for their teeth. So we've got a lot going on here and we're working in a very stressful environment. So it's got huge potential but it, and huge challenges as a profession, but um, it's, a, it's a wonderful profession. I'm sure you think, think that too, Vincent. After 10 years, I do. And didn't you have Sandra Khan on your podcast, the orthodontist who wrote the book? I did. I did. Okay. I did. I had them both. I had them both. But I talked to Paul more about, um, you know, I said to him, uh, well, you know, you wrote a book in 1970, The Population Bomb, and you said we wouldn't have enough uh, food to feed ourselves. How do you reflect back on that prediction? And, and you know, we talked more about, about that aspect. And then I asked him, of course, how come a guy with his incredible uh, uh, pedigree, uh, writes a book like this. And, and uh, then with Sandra, I got more into the, the, the dental part of it. But uh, it was a fascinating conversation. And definitely recommend that book to any dental colleague because it's so mind-opening what's going on with the mouth. Yes. Although I, <coughs> although I must say their, their um, focus was very much on chewing of our food and the, the, the biomechanics of not chewing our food and the impact that that had on our jaw development. Um, I think he did also touch on, but not as much as I think is important, the importance of preconception uh, nutrition mm -hmm. and the work of Weston A. Price, uh, which I'm sure you're familiar with, Vincent, the, you know, the, the, the nutrient-dense foods and the impact that has on jaw development and physical degeneration. Um, so I think preconception, intrauterine, early, uh, you know, breastfeeding, and then uh, our, 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 our diet from there on all impacts on, on our, and so does environmental issues as well. Our ability to breathe through our nose 
is is an important thing and our allergies and uh, it's a whole big story around jaw development absolutely and it a silent epidemic for sure so i want to be very respectful of your time because i know you get your day started i always ask a couple of questions at the end if you could go back to your first year of being a dentist and the knowledge you have now what is some advice you'd give yourself i would have focused much more on recovery much much more on recovery i came to sleep that that uh, importance of recovery probably only 25 or 30 years ago. I know that sounds, oh, well, that's still quite a while ago, but for the first 15 or so years of my career, um, you know, I was the kind of person that when my kids went to bed, that was when my wife and I get to be grown-ups and we would stay up until 12 o'clock at night and I would wake up at 6 o'clock in the morning and I would think I was okay. Well, I wasn't okay. I definitely wasn't okay. And the other thing I would do would definitely build in um, much more engagement with nature than I did then. Early morning sunlight, a much greater respect for my light environment. I think that is a huge topic um, that I go into with, you know, when I talk about recovery and all that. Our light environment is as important as our, as our food environment. Um, so that is a huge challenge today that wasn't the case uh, 45 years ago. Um, that is perhaps our biggest challenge now, managing our light environment and the impact that has on our ability to recover. Um, so, so I think focusing on recovery would have been where I, if I was going back now and I was a new graduate and someone said to me, what should I do? I would, <clears throat> I would definitely say, reflect on what's important in your life, organize your day accordingly, take longer with your patients, it's not about seeing more patients and, and focus on recovery. That's really important. That's such good advice. I think we have a mutual friend, Dr. Max Golhane. Oh, yes. Well, I do know Max, and I think what he's doing is brilliant. And uh, Jalal Khan, who is a, a colleague and a, and a friend and a mentor of mine. I mean, Jalal, I, I consider Jalal to be a mentor of mine. And, uh, you know, he's a guy, a dentist in his 30s. Um, but, uh, you know, he's, he's very much focused on quantum health. And I'm, I'm writing a second book uh, uh, now called Evolution Bites Back. <clears throat> and uh, that is all about um, the things that made us great as, as a species is now coming back to bite us. And our light environment and our ability to communicate are two factors that I explore in the book. When is the book coming out? Oh, no, that's a, that's a project for uh, next year, probably, hopefully next year. Okay. Hopefully I would next year. love to read it. So <laughs> yes. we're going to end this here. A Life Less Stressed by Dr. Ron Ehrlich. It has been such a pleasure. I really thought we were going to get more into the book, but the knowledge you expressed from experienced dentists was just amazing, and I know my audience really appreciated it too. So I want you to enjoy the beach. Go enjoy the rest of the day, and I'll talk to you soon. Thank you so much, Vincent. Thank you.